If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about Crunch Chocolate Bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy, munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, UK cinemas are getting a blood-splattered slice of Viking action with the release of Robert Eggers' new Scandi saga-inspired epic, The Northman. Starring Alexander Skarsgård, Nicole Kidman, Anya Taylor-Joy and Ethan Hawke, the film is a visceral and immersive take on the Viking world. One of the central historical consultants on the film was Professor Neil Price, an expert in the Viking Age at the University of Uppsala and the author of The Children of Ash and Elm, A History of the Vikings. I spoke to Neil to find out more about why The Northman is a Viking film like no other. So with The Northman, director Robert Eggers said that he wanted to make, quote, the most historically accurate and grounded Viking film of all time. You were a historical consultant on this film. So how was that experience? It was marvellous, frankly. Obviously, the, the Vikings have been on our screens an awful lot in, in recent years with, with varied success. 
when one works as a consultant on something like this, it, it's always really important to remember that it's not a documentary. It, it mm. is, in the end, entertainment. But Robert Eggers has become known for his attention to historical detail, and not just in terms of accuracy, like getting the belt buckles right or something like that, but in terms of the the atmosphere and the, the, the world building of his, his films. And this one was a bit of a challenge because his previous films have been set in time periods about which we know an awful lot more. We have much better mm. sources, quite simply. And this one in the Viking Age is, is more than a thousand years ago, so there's inevitably gaps. But I don't think I will ever encounter a filmmaker so dedicated to trying to get it right, including the atmosphere. And he's also very on board with the limitations, so he knows that... This is not absolutely in every detail how it was. It's, if you like, the best guess of mm. three particular Viking specialists. I'm not the only advisor on the film. And I, I think the result's marvellous. You mentioned their atmosphere, and that is a crucial element of this film, isn't it, really? This, this film is so atmospheric and immersive, and it's very, very intense. It feels really quite distinct from any other Viking film that I personally have seen before what do you think that it does differently here i think it tries to convey the world as the people of the viking age saw it on their own terms and one of the things that i think is very successful is that it doesn't explain any of it it's just there and there is a kind of ambiguity that as as with his previous films there are elements of what we might call the supernatural and it's up to the viewer to decide whether they are just simply the, the the fantasies or hallucinations of, of the characters or whether it's real. But what is very clear is that for them, it's completely real. And that is something that is, you use the word immersive, and I think that's exactly what it is. You are right there in their world, not in ours, in every way in terms of their outlook, their beliefs, their morality, which is very different from ours, um, their behaviour. It, it's, it's a sort of total package. You mentioned that you're one of three Viking experts who are historical consultants on the film. What is the role of a historical consultant on a film like this? Where are you involved and what stage of the process? I'm an archaeologist, so the, the work I was doing was very much connected with what we call material culture, um, the things, so uh, objects, weapons, buildings, you know, ships, all, all kinds of things. So my contacts with, with Robert were very much focused around those kinds of things. I, it began with the script, so I, I got an early version of the script and went through it and commented and so on, um, and then many subsequent versions. Uh, an enormous quantity of emails, um, me sending pictures of objects and so on. And particularly because this is such a big movie, it's the biggest movie Robert's ever done. Working with his team, he, he keeps the same core team of people in all his his films. So Craig Lathrop, who is the production designer, and Linda Muir, who designed the costumes, um, working with them uh, to to try and sort of bring this out. And then also um, I was on set during pre-production to, to look at how they're, they're doing all these things. So what are some of the challenges in bringing the Viking world to life on screen? I think actually the the gaps. We're used to sort of things like reconstruction drawings. I'm, I'm known particularly for my enthusiasm for those, not shared by everyone, I would say. But <laughs> when someone gives you the chance to recreate a Viking hall, you know, a royal hall, and you realise you don't know what Viking tables look like, 
<laughs> or, or benches. I mean, a, a table is a flat thing with legs, probably. Mm. But exactly what it looks like is 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 an educated guess. And if we left out all the things that we were unsure of, the actors would be moving around in a fog. And there's also other things. And Robert put it very well when he emphasised how uh, an awful lot of what we know of Viking Age clothing comes from finds from burials. And the the, the, the costume team have done marvellous work. I mean, really, they're, they're very, very impressive clothes. But as Robert said, if you could imagine a, a Viking Age time traveller being able to see the movie, it's very possible their first question is, why is everyone dressed as dead people? <laughs> you know, we, we don't know. I, I don't think that's the case, but there's always a risk. And it was very supportive for us, all of the advisors, that Robert was aware of that. So not only the potential of, of this sort of accuracy, but also its limitations. So what do you do when you come across one of those gaps? So say if you realise that you don't have any evidence of what Viking tables looks like, where where do you turn next? Ask him to deepen the shadows. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> uh, there's, there, there's, there's very few things that are in close-up that we're not reasonably sure of. There are challenges with things like, uh, we mentioned the supernatural elements in the film. There are several scenes, um, this, this is not a spoiler, there are several scenes set in for want of a better word, cult buildings, temples, if you you like. And we've got a pretty good idea of their architecture and vaguely the kinds of things that went on inside them. But when you really have to depict it, then there's an awful lot of license. It's educated guesswork, but but it is educated guesswork. It's not just complete free fall. One of the things I found as as an academic coming to this is that those ideas were coming in the other direction as well. Working with uh, Linda Muir, the costume designer, we were talking about some of the the offering scenes of sacrifices. And we know that the Vikings had something called blot, which is essentially a blood sacrifice of taking the blood of an animal and sprinkling it about with with a twig that you dip in the blood. And she's made all these marvellous clothes and said, you know, they, I mean, they can't have done this wearing this stuff because they'd get ruined and you can't clean them. So she had the idea that they must have had special clothes to do all this in, and I'd never thought of that, and I think she's right. So so they wear sacrifice clothes, which are stained with old sacrifice blood as well, which is, I think of the vestments of a priest, for example, it's, it's that kind of idea, which, which is entirely coming from the, the costume team, and I, I think it's great. It must have been really exciting as a person who spent many, many years um, working on this material to see it brought to life in such vivid detail it was amazing when i especially when i visited the set in pre-production i this sounds a bit ridiculous but i i I kept having to sit down actually because i was i was so overwhelmed by the sheer scale of what they were doing and thinking of what it would take for academics to commission a reconstruction of an object or something like that and this is taking place on a something the size of an aircraft hangar you know and, and you can see where the budget goes and, and so on and the the weapons the the clothing the the jewelry everything and the sets it, it it really was astonishing and i'm very happy that this different kind of viking age but very exciting still as it works as a movie is 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 coming out there now were there any particular objects or elements of set or costume, any real specific things that really, you know, made your heart sing to be seen done properly? One of the things I like about it is that I mentioned earlier that very little is explained. There's a lot of 
depth, a lot of layering in these things. So there's a kind of background authenticity which you absorb without being told about it. No one says, let me tell you about my sword and, and here it is and look at this bit and this bit. There's a scene in a, in a burial mound where um, the central character breaks into an old burial mound. Everything in that burial mound is a couple of hundred years older than everything else in the film. And nothing tells you that, but I know that it is. And I and others worked on this, and Robert was very, very careful with it. So that kind of little detail I, I really enjoy. We also see lots of boats in this film. And boats are, of course, one of the things that first spring to mind when people mention Vikings. What can you tell us about some of the boats that we see on screen? There's various kinds of boats, which is also good because the, the you have the sort of the, the classic Viking longship that everyone thinks of when they, they think about, about Vikings. And those are certainly present. But there's also the the ocean-going cargo ships. There are several voyages in, in the film. The boats are all made very with very close attention to detail. In fact, it's, there's a particular scene that I know Alex Garshgord has, has really singled out. There is a, a cargo ship seen offshore in the distance, and it's not even quite in focus because you're, you're, you're concentrating on the foreground. And as he said, th- this ship could have been anything, really. You, you can't really see it. But even that, Robert had a, a proper replica Viking ship because it was important that that's what it was. So there's a, there's a huge amount of attention has gone into these, these vessels. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But in the end, the the people of the Viking Age were individuals every bit as complicated and varied as we are. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I wonder if we could talk a bit more about the story and some of the themes in in the film now. It follows our central character, Prince Amleth, as he's on this quest for vengeance after the murder of his father. 
What are some of the historical and literary inspirations behind that story? You know, I'm sure that the, the, the film has been in part sort of marketed as a kind of Viking hamlet. It's mm-hmm. the story that uh, Shakespeare ultimately drew on for his play, although he, he changed it a, an awful lot. Really, it, it comes from an early 13th century history of the Danes by Saxo Grammaticus, drawing in part on a 12th century chronicle, the Chronicle of Lyra. And the basic story is is a familiar one. It's a, a prince who avenges the murder of his father by his uncle with complicated subplots of, sort of romantic entanglements and, and, and madness. There is a, a much later Icelandic saga version, but it's usually assumed that the story of Amlid is very old. It's, it's much older than Saxo, but how old and where exactly it comes from is, is not really known. But it's a, a story that's deeply rooted in the, the kind of ancestral traditions of the North. And I, I, it's a bold choice to use this as, as the kind of framework for a, a modern film, especially if people have Hamlet in, in mind. But it won't be as familiar as you think. Some of the twists and turns that the story takes, again, without any spoilers, are quite unexpected to, to a modern cinematic audience, aren't they? Do you see reflections there or, or echoes, perhaps, of some of the themes that you would find in, in Viking sagas? Yes, I think so. There, there is this this idea of, of fate, of something that you can't escape, although you might try, is a, is a constant pulse through the Icelandic sagas. They're quite laconic, they're quite relentless stories, and many of them in, in various ways are, are about revenge. It's not just a, a sort of cliched theme. This, this is something that's very deep in, in this, this culture. So I think in that it, it does connect very strongly to the, the saga corpus. And it's something that, that Robert drew on very, very heavily. He was very conscious of that and conscious of what kinds of sagas he was working with. This is much more like the legendary sagas, which are a little bit, little bit more out there than the, the family sagas. So it's, it's, it's very connected to that world. You mentioned vengeance, and another theme that's really tied into that here is is kinship and the importance of of family, especially in a royal setting. Can you tell us about the grounding of that in in a Viking tradition? How important was kinship in the Viking world? I think it's one of the most important things in the Viking world. It was the the glue that held their society together, this kind of social cement. And kinship not necessarily defined as we were. There are lots of, um, of foster relationships and very formalised kinds of friendships, different kinds of romantic relationships, political alliances, basically connectedness. And the film is very much about that. And it's also about the obligations that that places on you when those relationships are disrupted and also the consequences of those obligations, which might not be what you want or what you expect and those are also themes that play out in, in the film. Of course, as you've mentioned a couple of times, another huge theme in this is is the presence of, well, actually, this is a question for you. Would you call them supernatural elements? Would you call them religion? Would you call them a worldview? How do you see those those elements that we've talked about? I think that Viking scholars have used all of those terms. The one I would choose is an, is an understanding of the nature of reality. I, I wouldn't say it was religion or certainly not the supernatural, because there's nothing unnatural about all of these creatures and spirits and so on. They're they're deeply natural as far as the the people of the Viking Age were concerned. And I think that that 
comes out very well in the in the film even with just incidental mentions of things like let's hope that our luck spirits will be with us to to do this and it doesn't tell you what a luck spirit is but you get the idea there's a very careful choice of who can see the particular things and under what circumstances and it's always up to you to decide what what does that mean is this real or or not we also see some pretty intense and visceral rituals throughout the film at different points what do we know about rituals in the Viking world? Obviously, there's not a huge material legacy left behind by them. So how do we reconstruct those? We can sometimes see the results of them in terms of things that have been buried or, or scattered about as, as part of ritual activity. Sometimes we can get hints of what that might have been in later written sources, though there's a, a huge time gap and lots of other source-critical problems. I think one of the biggest challenges is the idea of berserkers. They're a cliché. They're, they're part of the kind of stereotype of the Vikings. Not all scholars believe they existed. Some some see them as, as essentially a literary idea. Other scholars see them as as much more of a, a sort of a, a, rit- a matter of ritual performance, a prelude to, to more regular battle. I wonder if you could just quickly outline what, who the berserkers, in theory, if they existed, were for anyone who might not know. Berserkers are, are uh, figures that appear in Old Norse texts essentially as male fighters who believe they have a kind of shape-shifting ability, a, a connection with animals, usually with bears or wolves. And there are descriptions of them uh, entering this this sort of uncontrollable berserk rage, is where we get the, the, the modern English term going berserk, that they fought without armour, with this sort of appalling ferocity, and they're used as kind of shock troops in, in the Viking Age. In the, the later texts, they appear as kind of stock villains. There's some poets and there's some early poems that, that mention them. And there are also a number of Viking Age objects that appear to show men either dressed in wolf skins or partly transformed into animals. So there's some kind of Viking reality behind that. I'm one of the scholars who thinks that it, it's a bit of both. I think it's a deeply ritualized set of behaviours and performances. But I also think that there were actually frenzied warriors who believed themselves to be shape changers. And that's the line that is taken in the film. And the central character, Amleth, is a berserker. So there was a, you asked about the rituals, that there was a big challenge in, in well, how do you present that? And, well, the audience can judge. I, I think that Alexander Skarsgård is, is, is truly terrifying, this, this absolute rage and it's not something that's even sort of interesting or admirable. It is just frightening, as it as it should be. And then the the prelude to that, the kind of rituals involving some some kind of movement, sort of dances. The music is conjectural. Whether they they use things like drums, we don't know. But it, it's it's a kind of best best guess of what that might have been like. Well, I would agree that it's a really a terrifying scene, isn't it? The berserker raid that our key character Amleth takes part in. And generally, it's a very brutal world that we see uh, here, isn't it? Is that a fair representation of the Viking world? Was the Viking world really as violent as it often is portrayed on screen? I think aspects of it were. It's important to remember that most people in the Viking age probably stayed at home, never went anywhere and never did any harm to anyone. And they're also people of the Viking Age, just as much as classic Vikings, the raiding Vikings and so on. But that violent side of the Viking Age was absolutely there. 
it is part of the kind of key plot elements of the film. So there's, there's certainly a reason for that. But it's also important, I know it was important to Robert, that the consequences of that violence are also very clear. You mentioned this raid, which viewers can, can see for themselves. But these are, not, these are not Vikings you'd ever want to be. And that's important. The things they do are, are appalling and are shown to be so. And that also links to um, there's a theme of enslavement that goes through the film in, in lots of different contexts, which is a very um, a very fundamental part of society in the Viking Age. This was a slave society. And, and that is very present in the film. And that's deliberate as well. So as you said, enslavement is this theme and we see people being transported across the Viking world. I wonder if you could tell us about some of the, the landscapes and the settings that we see, which are incredibly impressive. I can say I think the Icelandic tourist board is going to be very happy with this film. There are three main settings in the film. One is a fictitious but plausible island somewhere off the northern coast of Scotland, so it's somewhere like the Orkneys or, or the Shetlands, somewhere around there. There's also a setting on the eastern rivers, the land of the Rus, um, but the bulk of the film is, is set in Iceland. I, I know Iceland quite well, and I was very impressed that uh, Northern Ireland stands in for it uh, very, very well with a, with a bit of green screen work as well. But there's also uh, a lot of the film actually shot in in Iceland, and uh, as you say, you, you you really see that in these extraordinary landscapes. And volcanoes play a, a major role in the film as well, which is all I'll say about that. But but it's spectacular. So I think it gets this idea of of movement and of a broad range of travels. And lots of other places of reference as well. People mention that this object comes from somewhere else. And it's amazing to consider that the even the, the large geographical range of the movie is only a tiny, tiny portion of the Viking world. So it, it gets that idea of these are people who move. The Icelandic setting is a particularly interesting one. There was quite an interesting process in creating this Icelandic farming settlement. I wasn't involved in, in literally sort of building up that environment. I, I've sent visual references for Icelandic buildings and so on. These are buildings that are very much suited to their environment. They're made of turves, they're grassed over, they blend into the landscape, as, as you say. I think it's a very realistic view of these farms, which can appear isolated, but they're, they also have neighbours and they're, they're, they're in valley systems and so on. And you see all of that. And I know that the co-writer of the film, Sean, the, the Icelandic poet and, and novelist, he was very keen to find a kind of space for this farm, this family, at a very specific time in the early settlement of Iceland, where not everything was quite fixed. And it made sense that there could have been a community like that that hasn't left a historical trace, but it would work anyway. So it's very much embedded in not only Icelandic archaeology, but also the history of the country. If listeners go away and go watch The Northmen, what do you hope that they might take away from it about the Viking world? What I would hope that people who see this film take away with them is an understanding that this was in many ways a world very different to our own, especially in terms of attitudes and ideas and, and perceptions, but nonetheless human. And that the Vikings are one of the most stereotyped cultures in world history. They, they, they're sinking under a weight of stereotypes. And some of those stereotypes have a basis in reality. The violence, for example, it is a violent time. But in the end, the, the people of the Viking Age 
were individuals every bit as complicated and varied as we are. And I think that comes out in the film. So I hope that will be the, the, the takeaway there. And also the idea that they were not barbarians. They, they have sophisticated ideas, complicated ideas, and there's, there's beauty alongside the violence. That was Professor Neil Price. The Northman is released in UK cinemas today, the 15th of April. Neil's book, The Children of Ashenelm, A History of the Vikings, was published in 2020 by Penguin, and he appeared on the History Extra podcast back then to tell us all about it. You can find that episode by searching for Inside the Viking Mind in your podcast feeds. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.